Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the Roots Report podcast presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SC Microphones. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Peter Holsapple. He is known for his solo work as well as his bands, the DBs and the Continental Drifters. The Continental Drifters also featured Vicki Peterson of the Bengals and and Susan Cousel of the Cousels. He also toured with Hootie and the Blowfish and toured and recorded with R.E.M. Holesapple will be performing a Makes Himself at Home solo show on June 9th at the Creative Options Outdoor Education and Events Center located at 91 Weaver Road in North Kingston. Tickets are available at eventbrite.com. In a big way, caught saying something he shouldn't say. With a microphone recording, to in the crowd to be ignoring. He got taken to task for asking something he shouldn't ask. But he ain't got a lick of sense when it comes to talking over the fence. Fish 
But those days are long in the past For him my fondest wish would be The God I knew I toured with Hootie and the Blowfish for years, and there were some of those venues. There's some of the things that we would do. We did a show at what was it, uh, Brave Stadium, uh, playing for a uh, country star, opening up for him at some show with like 40,000 people. And the country guy's uh, ego ramp was there, and it was <laughs> just amazing. It went so far into the audience. I couldn't believe it. I mean, you got to come back. That's the problem. <laughs> you, know, you can walk out as far as you want. But you're going to look and showing your ass when you're walking back. I don't get the joy of that. My, my entire feed on Facebook and Twitter, well, actually it's Facebook, but it's, it's all my friends in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I grew up, because Paul McCartney played at Wake Forest. He played at Truth Field. A lot of the pictures are, look at the tiny little McCartneys out on the stage. <laughs> You know, and unfortunately, he's got that like this hundred foot video monitors and right. stuff, so you see some of what's going on, and the sound is good there. I love these the prospect of playing for a handful of people that know who I am, that know my songs, that really want to hear me play, and that I'm not some sort of obstacle to either the bar or the headlining act. I'm so, kind of the same way. I mean, generally, I like small shows, but I got to admit, I'm guilty of buying tickets for Paul McCartney this time because I have never seen him. He's a could. Beatle. You got to do that. He's a you Beatle. My girlfriend really wanted to see him, so I sold a kidney and bought the tickets. And Beautiful. We're going to sit, you know, in a, the next state over and, you know, watch it on the video feed. That's all right. The parking's probably better over there. Oh, not, not in Boston. Not Man, people... That's the other part of the feed was that people were stuck in traffic like for three to four hours in yeah. this part of the show. Yep. And they it's off. We're pretty close in age. And, you know, I've gotten to the, the, the phase in life where it's like, I want to see, I don't want a lot of people around. I want the music at oh, a yeah. nice level. Are you older than me or am I older than you? You're, you're a few years older than me. You're the same generation, Bruce. Yeah. I'm mostly like sitting. But I'll tell you what. I went on Friday night. Um, talk about neat venues. I went with my friends. 14-year-old daughter to see Sylvan Esso. Well, this is a two-piece group from Durham. It's a, a singer, a woman who's a singer named Amelia Meath, and her partner, Nick Sanborn, who used to play in a group called Megaphone from here. But Sylvan Esso is Grammy-nominated this year, and they were Grammy presenters. They're really great. It's a neat thing because it's 
also a group that my 14 year old likes independent of me but we both something we share and oh. that's nice and so we went and saw them at the old Durham Bulls ballpark the DAP which is where Bull Durham the movie was filmed oh, okay and Yola Tango opened up I've known those guys since before Yola Tango I stood for five and a half hours holy shit <laughs> I kid you not and we parked about three quarters of a mile away so there's the trot there and the trot back but it was worth every second of it I'll lean over once in a while and touch my ankles just to make sure I still have feeling in my spine <laughs> God, you know, but it's a rock and roll show. Yeah. You've got to get up and move around, you know? My girlfriend's like that. I I have a bad back, and it's my knees shot, and it's just, you know, standing up for long periods of time just get to me. And it's just, I hear you. It's this old age shit. It's just ridiculous. John, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out whether to do these shows seated or standing, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the element of, like, I'm standing up, so look at me. And then there's the idea of, I'm sitting down. I'm one of you. Yeah. And I don't know. I want to bring a lot of songs and not talk a lot. I feel like I, I feel like house concerts are a place where you can talk. Some people like to hear stories. You toured with R.E.M. and Hootie and the Blowfish, and I think I heard you did some stuff with the Indigo Girls as well. I played on a record of theirs, yeah. I played on uh, Nomads, Indian Saints, played on Watermark, played accordion on that, and there's another song, Pushing the Needle. Yeah, I remember there. that. I've gotten to play on a lot of great records, and I've gotten to I, I would say that 99 and 44 100th percent of my career of overdubs i am so proud of i'm glad to have that you know I, I like everything that i've gotten to do in music it's a privilege to get to be a musician no it, i my, believe it my is. brother my older brother was a musician he was a class he's the one that got the piano lessons and the organ lessons he was a choir director church organist he was just phenomenal and i couldn't do that but i that meant that we had a piano and an organ in the house so and then my father had an old mandolin, and my mom had a guitar, and I stole that from her. <laughs> oh, yeah, my brother was also old enough to where he had an accordion, because <laughs> that was the thing that you gave kids who were born in the 40s. Give them an accordion or a Hawaiian guitar. <laughs> I think my father got the Hawaiian guitar. You know, that's why they were all those little Fender Champ kids, with the, the telescoping legs on the lap steel and the little amp. My brother got the accordion. So I had all that stuff at my disposal. I had that to hear. I had the Beatles on the radio starting in 63, 64. I mean, I'd been listening to the radio before that with my mom in the car because she was an inveterate listener of rock and rock and roll. She just always had it tuned to the rock station. And we had a bunch in Winston-Salem, a well, bunch of good... From what I've read, it's you play all those instruments and more. What, do. what do you play? Or are you the person that, I think somebody told me this quote, if you give me a tuba, I don't know how to play it, but I'll make some music out of it or something like that. A loose John <laughs> Lennon. That's a loose John Lennon quote. Are you one of those that can just make music on anything given a couple of minutes? I have to say, with the notable exception of most wind instruments, I can play flute. I took flute lessons, and I can play flute. I can play recorder. I'm not the guy to ask for brass or saxophones. 
can't do that. My son, who's in college, is a superb trombonist. <laughs> the whole apple fell away from the tree, I guess. But I like to play everything. I like to try everything. I'm a little late to the game and finally figuring out how to make MIDI instruments and virtual instruments work on my recording setup. So I've got all that at my disposal too. But nothing beats uh, sitting at a piano. Somebody sets up a Hammond B3 and Leslie for you and then breaks it down afterward. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a oh, big plus. Know what I mean? I've moved Hammond organs and Leslie's and I've, I've dropped a B3 on my foot, so. Uh, yeah, I hear that. I have a friend who's who was on disability because he had an SVT cabinet oh, landed geez. on his ankles. He, <laughs> that's why the Nord is a really great little tool for a keyboard player like me. Yeah. I can drag, you know, it's dragging around a serviceable Wurlitzer and Hammond and I don't really have to sweat the original pieces, you know. I'm not in there soldering tines on a, on a 200A, you know, <laughs> and filing them to make it well, the Nords are great. I was looking at them the other day because, I mean, I play a little keyboards. I'm more in the line yeah. of I can make sounds on, make, give me, and I'll make some music on it. I play it in my band. I'm not really a keyboard player, but... Anyway, you probably have questions, and all I'm doing is just ranting. No, it's it's good. I like. I mean, I just I like. I have questions, but I usually just try to work them in. I, I just like to have conversations with people and and keep it informal. So you started with the DBs, but you started playing in bands at eight years old. Yeah, I have a picture to prove it. <laughs> it was a band that was directly a result of seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan that night. Like everybody else in my generation that started a band, it's like everybody was there in front of the television. My brother had leaned into me that week, my brother being 11 years older, and saying, Peter, I think you should watch Ed Sullivan this week. There is a group that's going to be on, and I think you're really going to like this. And I was like, okay. I wasn't really going to do anything after the wonderful world of Disney anyway. Sure. <laughs> and he was right. And I was just glued to it. And then my birthday was that February, and I got Meet the Beatles. The ball started rolling somewhere along the line. Just saw that my mom had this guitar, and it was an old silver tone the little student model with the really sprayed on looking sunburst. I said, could I borrow that? She said, sure. I think she was also trying to write the great American novel at that point. So it was another good distraction gone. So I took it and I got the Golden Beatles songbook. I had that and I started learning, started seeing these weird pictures of the Beatles. And they were always doing these chords, fretting what looks like a C or a G chord. I can't do that. <laughs> and then I would look at the, I, I had a chord book, and then I'd look in the Golden Beatles, and they'd say, E flat. And it's like, put your finger across the sixth fret and make an A major seventh chord. I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> So I learned a bunch of chords, and I tried to learn to transpose. And I listened to the radio, and I tried to play along with everything, but you spend half the song trying to get in tune with the track. When I got there, that's really what gave me the impetus to go further, was the fact that I could hear this stuff, and I could play it. And it was really exciting to be able to do that. I still can do that. It's a weird thing to be able to do. Some people just, I realize now what an extreme gift it is to be able to have that at right. my disposal. I taught myself how to play This Guy's In Love With You, the Burt Backrack song uh -huh. that Herb Acker did. A beautiful song. I'm really into both. Golden really Age of Music, you know, the 60s, ambitious, the 70s. Ambitious chord changes and they, and listened to it a few times and I sat at the piano and I just kind of found the chords. 
And so I taught myself and I was busy patting myself on the back. And then I played the record of it again. And I realized that I'd learned it in the wrong key. <laughs> so, so I went back and I relearned it in the right key. Now I can play it in two keys. Well, I mean, that's that's really a good thing that you can do that. I mean, not a lot of people can do that. People, I, I see people struggle with the teacher showing them exactly what to do and they still can't do it. So you have an innate ability to do this. I'm just wired differently that way. Because, you know, I mean, for years, in the various iterations of music that I've been a party to in my life, I've done a lot of charts for the band. I had a band for many years called the Continental Drifters. Yep a very fine proto-americana band with one of your one of your newport people susan house yes yeah you were married to her i was married to her and we are dear friends and we are parents of a lovely daughter and we are going to be grandparents in october as well wow for the Continental Drifters, one of the great things about that band was we backed a lot of people up. We wanted not only to be, you know, we were lousy with songwriters. We had so many people writing songs in that band. It got me very lazy because when there's six songwriters in a six-piece band, it's like everybody waits your turn. But we would always have guests, and we had so many guests. When we were in Los Angeles, we had so many guests. And then we moved to New Orleans, and we had so many more guests. And it was a gas, you know? And so I got to do this for this for every week. We'd find out who was coming to town. You want to come sit in with us? I'd love to have you come down. You want to work up five or six songs? Let's do that. We'll, we'll hook up. We'll go to a Peter and Susan's house and rehearse. Don't worry. It's going to sound great. And it always did. I got to do that with them. And then I also got to do that with Hootie and the Blowfish. They did, and they still do this. They do a benefit performance, a charity performance. They do a yearly charity event called Monday After the Mass. And it's the Monday after the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. And they have a golf tournament. And then there's a concert, and they get a bunch of their musical friends down. For years, I wrote parts for that. Also, we would have people like Johnny Lee doing Picking Up Strangers, doing Man of Constant Sorrow. And it was a lot of fun. I liked the idea of prepping for stuff. And I like it helped keep me mentally alert to be able to do charts like that. So you, you're one of the few, one of the musicians who actually reads music then. No, I don't read music. Oh. I, I do letter charts. I still can't read music. I've never been able to learn. I, every instrument I play is by ear. Yeah, that's the way I am, too. I don't really read music. I mean, I took lessons, guitar lessons, for a couple of months when I was, you know, 14 years old or 13 years old and learned a couple of notes on a couple of strings and wasn't really getting into that, and I quit. And then just started learning chords from the seniors in high school, and they taught me most of what I knew. Older guys, man. Yeah, we used to just jam with them in the hallways. I feel fortunate to have had so many of the sort of older guys in my upbringing in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The guys at the record store where I eventually worked, they're the ones that said, oh, Sweet Baby James, that's a nice record. You might want to listen to this one. And they hand me, uh, lick my decals off, baby. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see where we're going with this. Bring it on. We had a really great band scene in Salem also. So many active musicians, many of whom are still performing in bands in Winston-Salem today. That, to me, says we were... We weren't, it wasn't a competitive scene necessarily. We were all young teenagers trying to learn stuff off of Spooky Tooth and Move albums and Mop the Hoople records and Flame and Groovy's records and starting to write our own songs. So we had older guys that were playing Rolling Stones songs, and that was fun. But we took it another direction, we took it a little further down the road. 
and that gave us the impetus to try to write and record. What I read about you, it said that you you were in a band and were a professional player at age 14. 14 year old band was not a big money maker. Let's put it like that. When I was 14, I was in a band at prep school, and that was great. I came back to Winston-Salem after a tumultuous year, started playing in a band with Mitch Easter and Chris Stamey. Uh, and a drummer named Bobby Locke. And it was the third version of a band name called Rittenhouse Square, having nothing to do with the area in Philadelphia, just the name. But I guess we had a lot of posters printed up from the previous incarnations that we had to use. We were playing interesting stuff. And we actually went in, that's, that's the band that was playing Flame and Groovies and Mata Hoople to an audience that was really comfortable and accustomed to Midnight Rider and Midnight Rambler, not Teenage Heads. We tried to do something and we went into a studio in Greensboro in 1972 and we recorded an album's worth of songs, six songs, we called it an album. It got pressed up, 500 copies with paper sleeves instead of 100 copies with cardboard sleeves. So there's a few copies out there. Undercooked, you would expect that from young people our age. It's interesting. It's all up on YouTube for them as wants to hear it. You guys were writing your own material back then. Yeah, Mitch and Chris and I were all writing. Mitch had been writing before us, and I had started to write, and then Chris started to write, but Mitch had been kind of a pro. So I'd, I'd grown up watching this guy and seeing this exceptional guitar player with the Mozart guitar and the super reverb and he was in the stage band and he was playing art you know I finally walked up to him at lunch one day I kind of screwed up my courage and said hi Mitch <laughs> what do you think of Kid Dr. Jim by the MC4 yeah that's a great record <laughs> and we were like okay we got that out of the way and and we've been friends ever since and right now he's actually recording the baseball project's new record. I've... Steve Wynn, Mike Mills, Peter Buck, oh, okay. Linda, yeah. Linda Pittman, Scott McCoy. Yeah. It's all baseball songs. Cool. Oh, my father would probably love that. <laughs> you got yourself in the DBs, and you started as a keyboard player, but then moved over to a guitar player in that? Sort of was coming up. I've been living in Memphis and for a few months. Hindsight being 2020, I sort of wish I'd gone right to New York after high school, but I didn't. I was expected to go to college, so I did, and that was kind of crazy. But when I finally set all that bullshit aside and became a musician once and for all, I got up to New York. The idea was, we need a keyboard player in the DBs. Would you be interested in doing that? And I'm like, sure. And Chris had an Ace Tone Top 1 organ one of those little red jobs mm -hmm. with the rocker switch. So I played that and used that for years, and Chris still has that, as a matter of fact. I also came armed with songs. I'd been recording with Mitt after he stopped doing sneakers, and we were just back in Chapel Hill. And we had a band called the H-Bombs, briefly, that did a few gigs, and it was, again, a proven ground for our writing before the DBs and Less Active. Were you in Lex Active? That's Mitch's band. I just haven't heard that name in a long time, because that was a name I remember from back... Oh, Lex Active? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah they used to play around here quite a bit. They did a lot of touring. They were they were label mates with the DBs when we were eventually on IRS Records. <laughs> Everything, she'd taken everything. Manny went home and killed himself last night. She'd taken everything. 
DBs broke up in 88, then you went on and... I played with R.E.M. for a year and a half or two years. Now, went... you recorded with them and went on tour with them, right? I did. Actually, I went on tour with them first, went out on the Green Record Tour, Okay. the Green World Tour. That was the better part of the year. And that was amazing. That 
that took me to places I never thought I'd ever go to, like New Zealand, and played this crazy rock festival in Sinayoki, Finland, about 30 kilometers from the Russian border. That was like the craziest place I think I've ever been. It's like, imagine a rock festival that didn't have drugs, but people were just high-eyed. They could not stand up. They were so drunk. <laughs> and it's just like, and this is like watching people like at Suzanne Vega and R.E.M. You know, it's like, okay. But, you know, we had a great time. So I did that for a better part of a year, and then I recorded with them on the Out of Time record and played a bunch of stuff on that. I played acoustic guitar on Losing My Religion, which is a great thing, because I hear that all the time, and I'm very proud of having gotten to play that. You had, I mean, you left over some songwriting credit issues? Yeah, but, you know, I don't talk about that much anymore, because at this point, whatever bad vibe that entails, and it entails some bad vibes, I won't lie. I feel like everybody in the organization has moved on mm -hmm. from that. It's so many years ago. It was not ever anything that got resolved, but it may not have ever needed to be resolved, except in the fact that I'm still really good friends with Mike Mills, and I love him dearly. He is a soulmate of mine, and I've got that, and that makes me very, very happy. But you know what? I love playing on the record. I love playing with them. I actually got up and played with the baseball project when they came through in Chapel Hill. Got to play with the, even with Peter, and that was a lot of fun. I think we did, speaking of Flaming Groovies, I think we probably we did something like slow death or shake some action or something like that but it was a lot of fun after that is when you got into the continental drifters yeah sort of concurrent with leaving the rem fold i was living in los angeles i went to see this band at the behest of a friend of mine from new orleans carlo nucio and it was a band he was in and he said you guys come hear this and the bass player was mark walton from the drink syndicate and i knew i did i didn't know him but i knew steve because I'd hung with the Dream Syndicate when they first came to New York when Kendra was the bass player. So, long story short, went down. Then I got a call a couple of weeks later, and Carlos like, Peter, let's Ray can't make it. Can you learn our set? Come and play with us on Tuesday night. And I'm like, sure, I'm not really... I'm, I'm currently unemployed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, happy to do that. And I was like, you know, it's guitar. So I had to learn Ray Ganesho's part. Ray was one of the guitar players, beautiful high tenor voice. And so I went down and I sat in with them. And also a guy named Dave Catching plays guitar now with a group called Eagles of Death Metal. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Um, and um, and was unfortunately at the Bataclan when all that attack occurred. That's probably but why I've heard of them. Safe and sound afterward. His great countenance. He runs a studio out in, the, out in the West now. It took two of us to cover Ray's part, but we did. And I was like, wow. You know, and I started to get inside the song. I'd come down and see him again. And their keyboard player was playing in my wife's band, among other groups. He was playing in a bunch of different bands. I think I must have made it known that I... I was interested in actually playing with, first of all, before that, I produced a, produced them and met Susan and re-met Vicky, who I'd met when the DBs met the Bangles years before in Kansas City. And I kept up with her. We sent postcards and stuff. Now, is she the one that's married to John Cousel? She is indeed. Okay. At this point, however, she was newly, I, was, I say widowed, fiance had just passed away. Oh. And so she was hanging with Susan, who is her sister from another mother kind of deal. You know, they love each other so much and have always been a part of each other's lives. And so the two of them came down to Rocky's and would sit in and sing with the directors. 
and I would come up and play in keyboards and stuff like that sometimes, but I was going to produce them. And I took them to this studio and we cut a bunch of songs. And then it became kind of evident that, that Danny, who was the keyboard player, was really getting kind of spread thin. And I was like, well, I'd play if that's cool. And I think everybody eventually sort of agreed it was cool. And I, I made this big pronouncement, like I always do, like, well, I'm going to join this band, but I'm not going to write any songs. I'm not going to play any guitar. I'm just going to play keyboards. So there. I'm not going to sing any song. Well, that lasted about a week. You know, I brought a song in called Invisible Boyfriend. It's a song about Vicky and her, her presence at Raji's, where we were playing. It became kind of a nice cornerstone of the Drifters, and we played it a lot, and people really still love that song. I'll probably play that when I'm up in Newport. I love the song. I feel the power of being kind of transported back to seeing her sitting by herself at Raji's, trying to enjoy herself. That's hard to do, I think, when you have that kind of loss. Right. After the Continental Drifters, this is where you kind of went into the solo work more? Well, sort of. You know, the I Drifters... Mean, you hooked back up with, with Chris to do some do DB stuff, but... Over the years, I've gone sort of back and forth. I've done stuff after R.E.M. Actually, I had had just done the Mavericks record with Chris for Rhino New Art. And so we did a bunch of dates for that. And people really like Mavericks. They still do. That's, again, incredibly proud of, largely due to the work of Chris Staney. And it, who made it sound as beautiful as he did. And it really sounds, it's an adult sounding record for a couple of guys that had been in the, a vastly 20s ish band in the DBs, you know, jumping all over the stage. But it had a kind of grounded effect, which was nice. And, and actually, Chris and I have gone back and done another record recently called Our Back Pages. And we have looked at DB songs again in a sort of a more acoustic format. And we put that out on Omnivore a couple of years ago. And that's a really nice testament to songwriting. And I'm pr very proud of that, too, because Chris and I sort of recorded those on the fly years ago when we were working on another record. We just put, put them aside for another day. And the other day came, and that was nice. And it, we just happened to have most of it ready to go. It's, it's a lovely record. I'll probably do stuff from that. It's different arrangements of DB songs, but like I say, we're not... 23 and jumping all over the stage right right well it, i mean a lot of folks did that i i just saw joan osborne a couple of weeks ago and where she played what if god was one of us a very very acoustic stripped back version of it very low-key very soulful version i think you're allowed to do that when yeah. it's your song yeah, you know i mean i also think to their credit Hootie and the Blowfish have kept the same arrangements of their songs throughout the history of their band, which is coming up on 30 years, maybe, I think. And, and I think that's really a testament because they do know what the people want to hear, and they want to hear it sound like the records that they grew up with. Well, those, those songs have been, you know, drilled into people's heads, and they still get a lot of play. You know what, my hope, yeah, I mean, I hear it when I go to Lowe's Home Improvement, <laughs> you know? Here's one of my bigger hopes for the Newport show, is that people who've never heard me, maybe even people who've never heard of me, are able to come to the show. Just, you know, on a lark. I mean, it's McCartney tickets are $200, people. I think I'm 20 bucks. What is that? That's four lattes, maybe. Right, right. right? Well, I mean, and it lasts 
longer. Well, and it's, I mean, like I said, that it's uh, seeing the show in that aspect where you can connect with the performer more of an intimate level. It's like when people were, during the pandemic, when people were doing all the, the live streaming, it's just the same, it's in the same way. It's like you don't connect with the audience. I know as a performer, I need to connect with the audience to really get into a performance. And I need the performer to connect with me to make that performance special and make it feel like I'm there, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, we're, work, we're working in a vacuum if we don't have Right, that. right. And that's and that's kind of like what it's that sucks. like. It's a vacuum, gang. It is. It is. It's like, I don't like to play in a vacuum. It's just, I enjoy the interaction of people. I, I love seeing the response and the immediate response of people when I'm performing, how it's affecting them. And, and that kind of guides me in how I need to play things and interpret things. I mean, here's another example of that. The idea of a quiet performance, you know, one that, one that isn't absolutely bombastic. I was very fortunate to get to see Guy Clark perform, and it was tell you about coming out of the studio where it's dead quiet. It was even quieter. Wow. It was except for except for Guy singing. You could hear him breathing when he sang. You know, the guitar. You could hear what edge of his fingers he was picking with, and the audience just wrapped. They were they were banking on every note, and I loved that kind of interaction. And he told stories and he was funny as all get out it's rare to get that these days though because i've been to shows well I, that was probably pre i mean he's been dead for a while now anyway last i checked <laughs> one of the things i noticed is that people came back from the pandemic and they don't know how to behave in public anymore oh, good. and that's that's a thing that's been you're telling me this on the eve of my tour well <laughs> this is something i've noticed and i've you know because I, I went, you know, I went from like no shows to all of a sudden going to shitloads of shows. And yeah. it's people, I think, are in that Netflix bubble where they're used to on demand. And yeah. I've noticed that a lot of people just have lost the ability to understand how to act properly during a performance. They just kind of get up when they feel like it. They talk when they feel like it. They just kind of think they're in their living room. There's no consideration for the people around them. I'm hoping that that was just a small window of people getting used to it again and it doesn't carry on. Yeah. It's kind of annoying and I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of a curmudgeon when it comes to shit lately, but to me it's disrespectful to music. It's, you know, you're going to see a show, it's 90 minutes long you can sit still for 90 minutes you know oh i know i know i went to a house concert a couple of weeks ago and was actually surprised to hear some chatter during the songs it was a solo performer on a 12 string acoustic and singing i don't know i mean i'm going to be grateful for any audiences that i get at this point this is a kind of a, a make or break moment in my long career to sort of figure out what i do next i like the prospect of playing for a small devoted audience sure as shit wouldn't have minded if it had been a large devoted audience but i think that ship has sailed honest to god i'm 66 years old it's fine I love it. I just, I just want to play. I want to, you know, as long as like, the muse does not desert me, I really can't stop this. What am I going to do? Get a job? <laughs> I can type 80 words a minute. Let's talk about this new stuff that you've been doing. I, you sent me these three songs, and I, I listened to them, and I like them. Tell me again what I sent you. I you sent, sent you Cancelled. Cancelled, right? I Am a Tree, and Amplifier. Okay, well, here's the, here's the skinny on all that. Okay, <laughs> Cancelled is the new the newest thing 
And I did that last year, I think. Yeah, I was just like really impatient and I was really sick to my gut of the former congressperson or soon to be former congressperson from the western part of my state going to be daddling off into the sunset soon enough not soon enough i was just beside myself and i thought i would write something that was timely or in other words time stamped i wrote it and I thought, well, I don't really want to put it on a record. Why don't I just do it as a video or something, or I'll, you know, put it on Bandcamp. So I did that. Was that video shot in front of your recording shed? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. And it's it, it's very fortunate because I have this, I have a metal pole that is directly across from the door of the hit shed, and I have a magnet on the back of my iPhone and so I can just attach it to the thing and I'm at a perfect distance and I can walk up and down and move around. It's designed for media here at the Hit Shed. Well, I, I liked, I, I was like, I like the song. It was canceled in a big way, not a sense, lack of sense, talking over the fence, windmills to tilt at, hills to die on. I, I like the words in that. It, I like those kinds of songs that say something, and that that was really well written. And the, thank you. The Beatles. I mean, the organ in that song kind of reminded me of a, a little Beatlesque in that organ part. Oh, cool. That's funny because I, you know, I had played in a uh, Mr. Kite. Had a, it had a Mr. Kite feel to it. They, I'll tell you what. It actually for me, I had to check in with all of my my Ray Davies fan friends, make sure that I hadn't lifted the chorus from a really, really great Kinks song, because I'm a <laughs> huge Kinks fan, and I was just like, oh, gosh, that really feels like Nicky Hopkins on Mr. Pleasant, doesn't it? Oh. I hope I didn't. And I, uh, when I moved to Durham, for a while here, I was playing in a Kinks cover band, that's K-O-E-R, <laughs> called the well-respected men oh cool um also featuring yet again we circle back around to the guy that shared the bill with you glenn jones cool i'll uh, send you his link all right, he's, yeah, a, I, I, he's a singer songwriter with a beautiful voice yeah I, and a very fine bass player so have to check check who it out i probably might ring a bell now well there's there's a couple of glenn joneses out there i'll send you this one oh, okay I was going across some interviews. It said that you're a big fan of Ben Montanch. Yes. Well, he's actually a, an old friend from prep school. And oh, really? I had, we played in bands that year. He was a senior. He lived toward, two doors down from me on the, my dorm. And our bass player lived between us. We had a couple of bands, and we played a lot of cool stuff. And I was up there with a kind of a, a rubberized checkbook and a, and a record store to go to. and. <laughs> I was getting a lot of records. I can tell you that. We were playing a lot of cool stuff and getting in a lot of trouble. So, And then ever since then, we've stayed in touch. I, I took a quick break from music uh, during my freshman year of college at the behest of what I thought was a girlfriend until after I was no longer her boyfriend. And I snuck to the record store one day because I was not going to do that anymore. And I saw this record by Tom Petty. And the Heartbreakers, and I look on the back, and there's this Ben Mop dance. And, <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, this is a sign. Suffice to say, that relationship ended, and I went back to playing music and writing songs and stuff like that. And Ben Mott actually played on the last contiguous DB's record, The Sound of Music, that came out in 1987 on IRS Records. He played organ on a couple of songs, like Change with the Changing Times. 
Oh, man, he just tears up the B3 on that. He's my mentor that way. And we stayed friends, you know? We're always in touch. Now, this other song, I'm a Tree. You underestimate me, I will live 100 years, I'm strong and certain, and you dip your own branch in the same fire. I I like those lines. And I I like the little guitar riff on there. It's um, the guitar with the... Or is it doubled? You know what it is? I, I had to think about it just for a second. It's the tuning is E, A... B G B C. If you've never, if you've not messed with that tuning lately, try it. Just drop your high E down to a C, hmm. like two whole notes, and play in the key of C. Play things like C and E minor and A minor and F, leaving off the high string, and it's just beautiful. It's really rich. That song is about an intervention, which was. It didn't take at the time, but I'm very happy to say that it eventually did. Here's one for the good guys, you know? (laughs) That's what I think about when I sing that song now. Now, is that something you'll be playing at the show? I might. I don't know. Should I? I, Here's my thing. I like it. Here's my thing with this show. It is a good song, but, you know, I started figuring out, I've worked up about 65 songs (laughs) for this tour, but the problem is this. What people, I think, really would like to hear most are songs by the DBs. Right. And I understand that because in so many ways, your career is often defined by the first stuff that you put out that people actually hear in mass quantities, certainly droves. (laughs) You know, um, they heard those first two DBs records on college radio at an ideal time. And that's where the memories lie. And so it's really great that I've done records since then. And, you know, there's people like that from the Continental Drifters, too. Corollary problem is that three of the um, records by the DBs are, are no longer available on streaming services or in physical form because of a dispute with the company that owns the masters now. My feeling is I would love to be able to play stuff from those records, especially one from 1987 that we were talking about that Ben Mond is on and Van Dyke Parks is on and oh my gosh wonderful wonderful people Lisa Germano from um, John Mellencamp's band played on it too oh beautiful record that's the second record where I wrote all the songs it's not to me a great sounding record but it's got some really great songs I'd, I'd like to present them I'm thinking that it's going to be sort of a DB centric set list if I do 20 songs which is going to be pushing it you know at least 13 will be DBs, I would say. Because I've got other stuff, you know? I want to play stuff. I'd love to play Angels, because people know that song by the whole Pat Mustaine record. I'd love to play uh, something. I did a solo record in 2018 called Game Day. Again, I'm very proud of. I played all the instruments myself, except for horns. (laughs) What I tell you? I'm an expert. Don't try to be your own exterminator. (laughs) Call an exterminator. Call a trombone player. Don't do it yourself. (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is that the beauty of these intimate shows is that you can play things that if you're if you're rehearsed enough with these 65 songs that you have and can play them on off the cuff then if somebody says hey can you play this song and then you can maybe bump something out of the set and satisfy that immediate person's wishes and still play a good show yeah you know i mean the 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 thing is about that i'd love that but sometimes it'll be like they'll call out for something like something from the Rittenhouse Square record and I'm like no (laughs) 
Yeah, I can't do that. Funny, I, I kind of threw the floor open on Facebook, and um, that's, that's like people, that's oh, like I know that's like light and fluid on a match. Come in the waters. Yeah. One of the things they they asked for was a, a song that I'd written for uh, this punk band I was in in high school called Little Diesel with Will Rig Will Rigby, who was the drummer for the DBs, was the drummer in this band too. And we had this great singer, Bob Northcott. But we did a whole record in Chris Stamey's bedroom. A five-piece band with at least one other hangers-on. Chris and me and um, all the amps were like these little tweed champs that were hanging on the walls. <laughs> it was so funny. And it finally, actually, the record never came out. We pressed up eight tracks of it. Oh, I think I read about that. 25 of those yeah. things. But it was a really amazing experience. And again, all that stuff we did with Rittenhouse, talk about playing to a bespoke audience. So we did this record, and I wrote a song called Teenage Heartache Lament, or Teenage Heartbreak Lament. I can never get that right. And two people said, you should play that one. like... <laughs> <laughs> Being the dutiful, loving guy that I am, I put a capo on the guitar and I tried it. Potentially do that? I don't know. You know, it really is going to strike my fancy, I think. I'd like to go into it with at least a half a mind of what I'm doing. You know, and here's the other problem. I'd like to play a cover or two. I've always played covers. I've played right. covers in all the bands I've been in, and I, that's half of the fun of playing. Is, right. You know, sometimes that shows people who don't know you or who aren't as familiar with you maybe a little bit of where you're at and where you're coming from right and i've worked up a couple of interesting new covers and i've got a sheaf of old ones that i went through i went through all my charts that i still have i lost most of my charts in hurricane katrina unfortunately i still got plenty believe me um <laughs> from other stuff but i um i was going through all the lyrics for all the songs and going through notebooks that i've had them printed out and put into and try to compress them into something that i can drag along with me if i need it it was interesting to see some of those songs mm. and 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 again trying to put together that 65 60 song whatever list to work from i just like to have alternates i like to be able to go with the flow man you know well i mean uh, the, the thing about a show like this is you know opposed to you know using paul mccartney as the and the people in the audience can interact with you and you could actually discuss what you're going to play whereas paul mccartney's got a set well there's no way anybody's going to ask paul mccartney to play anything because he's got a set and he's going to play it every night they're going to ask him anyway though yeah. they're going to if they're in the front row they're going to be yelling out for norwegian wood don't worry on the other hand you've got something like Max Weinberg who goes out on the show on what he calls his jukebox show and he has a screen behind him of songs that the band will play and people just scream out what songs to play and they'll play them it's an all request that's really show great. that's a really great thing you know so, I mean it's it's good to be a jukebox the thing with the McCartney show though is obviously as you and I both know when you get to that level of touring it's not some guy with a with an overhead projector and a bowl full of jelly you know, right. it's a real lighting cues. Uh, the guy that friend of mine that works for Hootie and has run lights for them for years, Will Loudermill, amazing guy. Jeff Cranfield, the guy that he learned from. And I watch them at they when they work, too, you know, and see what goes on back there. And, you know, sound cues and all that stuff. The casual nature of the house concert and the small show is good. You know, it allows the interaction to be real and intimate and quiet right. I'll, I'll reinforce the quiet part <laughs> i'm bringing i'm bringing an acoustic and a fishman loud box 
But I'm also bringing a little Fender-powered speaker PA and a Fender Pro Junior and an Epiphone 339 and my pedal board. So I'm going to be prepared for all comers. You know, some songs will work better electric. Fantastic. Some some are going to be ideal for acoustic. I just want to do it all for as long as I can, and then and then I can go. The the song Amplifier. No, that's more of a rock rock song as opposed to the other two that you sent to me. Amplifier is a more of a, a harder edge song. That's a song from the DBs. That's okay. a that's probably going to be what's inscribed on my headstone one day. Who was that about? Was this something you went through or somebody else? You want to know the really incredibly prosaic inspiration for this song? is it was a picture sleeve of Can't Stand Losing You by the Police. <laughs> Of the 45 that I saw, I was, I, I'm not sure, I probably was too tasteless for America, but it was, it was a guy's feet, and it was a pool of water, and it was a space heat, and it was really evident that it was this really long, arduous hanging scene, and I just thought, wow, you know, and then I made it look like an amplifier in my head, you know, that that's what he jumped off of instead. And it just sort of fell together. It, I wrote the lyrics walking from our practice space to my apartment in, in East Village. It's a song that I trusted immediately because it all came together at once. The chorus was pre-written somehow when it came to me. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. like, you can labor over songs. I know songs in my catalog that I spent, I, I don't think I, I don't think there's anything I spent years on, but I think there's stuff I spent months on. And those are the songs that I just find unlistenable. The Invisible Boyfriend song. That is a song that came together like that. It all fell together at once. The whole arrangement, everything. Those are the things that I trust. I think that goes hand in hand with being able to do those charts and being able to play instruments without knowing how to read notes and hearing stuff. And I think it's all just I, this marvelous package that I've been entrusted with. And and I'm so glad to have that. I'm not a religious guy at all. I'm a... Um, I'm, you know, Katrina shook my faith to a point where I don't know what that will be like evermore. I am a spiritual person, I think. And I feel spirits that I've, you know, some of the people that I've written about, some of the songs that I've written. I mean, Amplifier is not about me, but it could be. It's not about anybody. I have a song with the Continental Drifters called Daddy Just Wants It to Rain. It's this seven or eight minute, dare I say, ode epic poem of farm failure and i have people come up to me and say i love that song about your daddy man (laughs) and i'm like that's not about my dad my dad's probably the banker that foreclosed on him you know so i i'm a i'm a fiction writer at heart but the best fiction is based in truth and i've kind of learned how to do a nice blend of that i think and that's why getting to play these songs again and getting to play it in this kind of 
context is really good because if a song is good, you can produce the living hell out of it. It's polishing a turd if it's not good. A song, it feels like, should be able to stand on its own just with the barest minimum of parts. Well, that's the way I feel about songwriting is if a song is great, if you can sit down with a guitar or piano and play it and make it work and it sounds great, that's, that's the basis of a song in my view. John, you're absolutely right. But listen, here's an experiment. Listen in a, you know, listen when you're at a store, and if you hear in the background music, and all of a sudden you hear boom, 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 and you know it's if you want me to stay, and you that's all you have to hear, you know the song, and you can't hear the vocals, you can't hear anything else, but all you hear or a Motown song, and you hear that James Jamerson bassline pumping along, just the just the elemental parts of you know that's a lot of how i try to play guitar i like to make sure that the bass line is kind of covered your homeboy bob cowsill showed me a lot about that in his solo shows i would go see him play at the pickwick pub in um woodland hills california early in susan and my relationship and i would listen and he would do beatles songs and this is one guy right? Mm, right but it's like part of it is yeah we've heard these songs so many times we know what the parts are supposed to be but the other part of it was the implicit part you hear all the harmonies right in your mind you're hearing it right. the other part of it is you're hearing the stuff on the guitar you're hearing a lot of what paul did on the bass and bob's doing that with his thumb on the low strings or his fingers you know and he's orchestrating cording to where the arrangement implies the missing parts and that was just a freaking eye-opener let me tell you that was so great and it just it it clued me into a lot of the stuff i mean i've been one of those kind of bashing guitar players for years you know suddenly i was able to as a that was the first time in a long time in my guitar playing that I had taken a step back and said, oh, maybe this is something you should really, really sort of develop. And I did. And I feel like I've, I've I've been a good acolyte of Bob's to that. So, Well, we probably should wrap this up. We're really cruising into like an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, I've enjoyed talking with you, though. I, and, um, I would like to talk to you more. I, I'm going to leave you with this. She, we were going through her records last night, and she's like, yeah, this guy at school tells me I should listen to Bob Dylan's greatest, greatest hits. I'm like, ah. and I said, yes, yes, you should. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes through the records and she's like, Mac Miller, I think Mac Miller is really great. That's great. Okay. Uh, Frankie uh, uh, Oceans. Yes, yes, yes. That's great. The Regrets. Yes, they are wonderful. We love The Regrets. Yes. Dum, 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 dum. Angel. I love this Angel record. I'm like, fuck, what? <laughs> Punky Meadows? Oh, come on. Come on. And I was like, my, you know, this is the girl that I took to see Sylvanesso. What are you going to do? <laughs> I, I wish we could sit and talk all day, but I gotta let you go too. I gotta, I gotta deal with a son who should be waking up any minute now. It's three thirty in the afternoon, <laughs> so, and I'm gonna try to get some practice in. Thanks for talking and good luck. Thanks, sir. Happy editing. Bye bye. I am a tree. You underestimate me. Hundred years, and if I don't, I know you won't either. So kindly spare me all your tears. I 
certain Just what were you expecting I've weathered storms Worse than this one before me And I think it's you who needs protecting Concern does not concern me Fear I do not fear Caution is for the cautious I will live a hundred years I am a tree Don't try to compromise me For you will not prevail here at best If I can't pass your test Well I still be proud to fail here Cause I am a tree And from what I see The whole lot of you lies And each one of you You know what I said is true Dipped his own branch in the same fire as I So your worries do not worry me Who cares what you care Once I can put down roots I can be a tree somewhere Okie dokie. Thanks to Peter Holsapple for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. Holsapple will be performing a Makes Himself at Home solo show on June 9th at the Creative Options Outdoor Education and Events Center located at 91 Weaver Road in North Kingston. Tickets are at eventbrite.com. E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E. And look up Holsapple. That's H-O-L-S-A-P-P-L-E. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, The Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.